2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This is the second installment in our month on Spy Chiefs. This week, I sat down with Ellen McCarthy, who was formerly the head of the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, or INR, at the U.S. Department of State, one of the 17 agencies that make up the U.S. intelligence community. It's one your average person on the street doesn't know about, but definitely should. Listen in to learn more. She started her career in the Office of Naval Intelligence as a Soviet submarine analyst, but along the way spent time at places such as the US Coast Guard, bringing its intelligence program into the intelligence community, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defence for Intelligence, where she was Director of Security and Human Capital Management, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where she was its Chief Operating Officer. To learn more about her fascinating career and what she learned along the way about leadership and transformation, I sat down with her for a lovely conversation that will be released in two parts. We discuss how she ended up working in the world of intelligence, the similarities and differences of working for government, nonprofits, and for profits, the value of networks and networking, and the future of intelligence and the intelligence community. Get ready for part one. Well, I'm so pleased to speak to you this morning, Ellen, especially since you've had such a rich and varied career in the intelligence community. But just before we dive into that, that's not where your career began, is it? You were uh, a journalist once upon a time, is that right?
0: Absolutely. And even before that, I was a waitress and a bartender and a newspaper carrier, so.
2: Wow. And so how did you first get involved in the world of intelligence? Was it a family connection, a teacher, serendipity? Tell us how you got involved.
0: So, you know, Andrew, I would love to say that I've had this deep passion to always work in the intelligence community, but, you know, I really didn't. I was um, living in Annapolis, Maryland. I was working in a newspaper. I started delivering. um, I was a circulation manager, and I moved to become a, a freelance writer and then a reporter. The common theme here really was a person. It was the publisher of the newspaper, Phil Merrill. You know, we really didn't have mentors back then. He was just an incredibly wise and supportive boss. And he told me about this graduate program at the University of Maryland in public policy. And I thought, well, you know, that'll be kind of fun. I mean, my whole life has been, well, I'll try that and we'll give it a couple of years. And so he helped me get into this program at the University of Maryland. And it was through that program that I did an internship with the Institute for Defense Analysis on the subject was depressed trajectory ballistic missiles as a countermeasure to SDI, Um, the Strategic (laughs) Defense Initiative. And through that paper that I was writing, which would ultimately become my thesis, I was working with Naval Intelligence. And in the process of getting information from them, um, they said, hey, why don't you come work for us? And again, applying that, well, you know, I can do anything for two years. I, I, I really, if I had a lifelong goal, it was to own a golden retriever, a sailboat, and a house in the Chesapeake Bay. But <laughs> I'll tell you, it's one of those things, once you get into the intelligence community, you, you don't leave. I mean, you just, you get bitten by this bug and, you know, you you never really leave the work of intelligence. And so that's that, thats how it happened.
2: Wow. And do you feel that some of your writing skills that you developed as a reporter transferred over into intelligence because writing is an important part of the job, right?
0: Yeah, Andrew, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that being able to present information succinctly with a bottom line that is very clear up front. I mean, those skills absolutely translated. I mean, I think the three major skills any intel um, officer needs is his ability to think critically to compose and writing messages that are very clear and can make a connection to your customer. And then, of course, your ability to present verbally through briefings and presentations.
2: And is there any ways in which they're different? Because I'm thinking just from what I know of, say, journalism, you like you say, you want the main part up front and then the rest of it is like explaining it. And there's other ways of writing, but is there are there any differences that you uh, learned when you went from one field into the other?
0: I'll tell you, no. I mean, maybe journalism has changed since I've left, actually. But in the days that I was writing, it was all about sources of information and vetting your sources of information, ensuring that what you were presenting in a news article was true and accurate. And that's very much the case within the intelligence community. Our motto is truth to power. So when you present on anything in writing, the expectation is that there's no bias, that it's been vetted, that it's been sourced, that it's been resourced, that your thinking has triangulated your thinking. So you're not just presenting one side to something, that you're looking at all sides of an issue. It's almost the scientific method. In my days in, in writing, that's exactly the principles that applied. I think many of your listeners would agree that that's not so much the case today in journalism, where a lot is written just to support a narrative that the consumer already has.
2: And just before we move on to the next question, I just thought to myself there, who are the more uh, stricter editors? When you were at a newspaper, you hear of these old school journalists who wouldn't accept split infinitives and so forth. And I'm sure in the IC, the, the editing and so forth was, was pretty rigorous as well. Tell us about that process as well.
0: So it's, that's absolutely the case. And that's probably the most brutal part of whether you're writing as, an, as a reporter, and, the, and as a journalist, or as an analyst. It's that editing process. It's almost the red teaming of what you've written. And it's like killing your baby when you see sections of an article getting pulled out. I'll tell you, the interesting difference though is, at least from my perspective, while I hated the editing process as a journalist, I actually um, liked it as an intelligence officer because it meant somebody read what you had written. So, you know, if you had questions or if you had things marked out or you had some feedback, you knew that you were getting to whoever it was, whether it was an editor or your ultimate customer. I mean, the worst thing ever is writing something and then never getting any sort of feedback. Then you're just writing for nothing. So at least for me, that was a major difference.
2: I feel like this is a really interesting vein that we've struck upon here. So, just one one additional follow up question: How is that being a journalist? You you have your byline. You're getting validated. Um, you know that the readers are looking at your story. But the work of most intelligence officers is is never known. You're never. There's no byline that goes out in the public. By and large. So, how is that press process from? here you go, world, this is Ellen McCarthy, make of it what you will, to, okay, it's going to be read by some people uh, behind the scenes, but it's never going to see the public light of day.
0: Andrew, i got to tell you, I'm I'm so glad we, we went here, because I'll tell you that I think, you're right, I mean, when I started in the intelligence community, it was the Cold War. And the data that analysts would work with to provide an assessment was for the most part captured by national technical means. So it was satellite systems or reporting from humans on the ground or communications intelligence. And we would collect all that data and we would provide some sort of an assessment or some insight to our customer. And in those days, the Cold War days, for the most part, those assessments couldn't be gotten by anybody, by any other resource. There was nothing going on in the private sector that could even come close to whatever information we were providing our customer. And so that's where bylines and being catchy just, it didn't matter because you had such a direct relationship with, um, you know, in my case, I was working with submarines. And so, um, you know, it was a very one-on-one relationship. 30 years later, that has very much changed. You're right, we don't, the intel community still doesn't use headlines and bylines to the same extent Although we do use them, but I'll tell you, I think we need to adopt more of those principles because now we no longer are the only game and talent in the intelligence community. I'll tell you, especially on the policy side of the house, there are many other places that a policymaker can go to get insights on any subject. And if you're not connecting with the policymaker, if you're not catching their attention, they can go to many other places. And in some cases, they're going to go to places that may not provide a truthful or an accurate insight. And so I would actually pretend at this point that we maybe need to think more about the use of headlines and, and sub-headlines. I, I actually think that the business model for the intelligence community should be that of content provider. And not so much in my days when I started when it was not only providing content, but keeping secrets secret. hmm
2: it's quite interesting what we're seeing play out in the Ukraine as well, and I just wondered if you briefly had any thoughts on that. the The way that the U.S. Uh, intelligence community and British intelligence, as well, are saying, you know, prepare for this false flag operation. Here's what the Russian troops are doing. So it's very different from when you joined, right?
0: Oh my gosh, I've got to tell you that I've never, I haven't seen this at, at all in my time in, and I'm so proud of our communities for doing this, but there's always a but. So I I would argue that the intel communities should continue providing this sort of insight to the American public or to the world public. That, I mean, that very much shows that the value of the IC right now is providing insights. Again, it's not as much keeping secrets, it's providing insights. And so, I mean, I also say that I, I would, I, I would suggest to you and the listeners that a lot of what is being provided is already available in the public domain. So really it, it's about you've got a core of analysts and and those who support the intelligence community who are doing everything they can to declassify information and make sure that it gets out. Not only to people, but also I mean to people from both sides of the aisle on this, potentially to get to Putin and Russia, Um, you know, so that shows me that I I really do think that the intelligence community needs to maybe flip its business model, that we're really seeing now that that the delivery of um, insights is hugely valuable, it's hugely needed, but maybe what it's taking to get there, maybe it can be done a little more easily, And, and maybe that means that we need to work much more closely with the private sector.
2: So we're going to look at the narrative arc of your career, which is really fascinating because you're in different parts of the intelligence community, but you also start off as an analyst, uh, junior analyst, and then you end up heading up one of the components of the intelligence community. So just tell us about that first position, the Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, Just when I hear those words, there's so much history, there's so much that comes along with that title. So just tell us, what was it like being Ellen McCarthy joining the Office of Naval Intelligence?
0: There was some part of me that had no idea what I was getting into until I got there. But I will tell you that it didn't take very long to realize that this was um, just an incredible opportunity. As I said, when I went into O&I, The Hunt for Red October was top chart selling book at the time. My mother actually worked at the uh, Naval Institute, which was the publisher of The Hunt for Red October. So it just seemed like it would be fun. I read the book and I said, well, I could do that. In those days, there was not a lot of training. When I got hired, I think it was because I had been a reporter and I was familiar with some of the information because of my work on my thesis. But there was not a lot of formal training. It was really trial by fire. And I started my job looking at Soviet submarine design philosophy, so I was was looking at what the Soviets do. I'll tell you that I learned very quickly, though, that sitting and doing research was not my true love, that I, again, as a report, a, a former reporter, I liked sharing information. And so I moved from looking at Soviet submarine design to um, looking at Soviet submarine operations. And I actually left Suitland at the Office of Naval Intelligence and would move down to Norfolk, Virginia, where I would support the operators, the so submarine forces Atlantic and the commander in chief of the Atlantic Fleet and their submarine capabilities. Because I really, I loved the day-to-day interaction with customers. I, I will tell you that O I really is the founder of a, of a of an analytic process called operations intelligence, so Op Intel. That was birthed with the United States Navy and with the UK. The concept of putting a puzzle together, looking at imagery intelligence and looking at signals intelligence and finding out what you're missing and then tasking systems to fill in the blanks and then putting together this picture that you then shared with a, in my case, it was submarine operators telling them about what I knew and what I I didn't know. And then getting direct feedback. It was incredibly exciting. And I'll I'll just wanna share that one reason I did leave Naval Intelligence in Suitland and moved down to Norfolk was again it was this concept of writing never knowing where it was going that's going to be a theme of whatever we talk about going forth Andrew because I think really there is the value of being integrated with the people who are ultimately using the information that you're providing them that you can't substitute this concept of sitting in a corner and writing eye-wateringly beautiful intelligence but never having any idea who's going to use it is not the best business model but that's how it all started.
2: Wow. And I I particularly find the submarine chessboard, if you want to put it like that, of the Cold War, really, really fascinating. You know, just by the nature of submarines, they're inherently clandestine. There's an, an inherently clandestine nature that's built into them and the whole Barents Sea, Murmansk, Arctic Fleet. And it's-
0: oh, you're right. And I'll tell you that I think, again... While the world is so much more interconnected and difficult today as opposed to what it was during the Cold War, what I and my and others learned working the Soviet submarine problem back in the Cold War, um, you can apply to virtually any target. And so you're right, it was just it was an incredibly rich target. We didn't have all the information, so it really was about hunting for answers in an environment that was not always giving you answers. Because to your point, the Soviet Union, very closed system, very protective of information. So you really had to be curious and you really had to be creative in terms of how you how you figured out what was going on.
2: And And just briefly before we move on, you mentioned that there wasn't much training to be an analyst, but was there much training on the history of naval intelligence, the key achievements and landmarks, even failures and hiccups, was that instilled into people that had just joined or did you pick it up by osmosis or was it neither of those?
0: You definitely picked it up by osmosis. You couldn't help but not. Again, I am so grateful that I got my start in in naval intelligence, because I really believe that, that some of the best analysts are born from the naval intelligence community, given the target you described. But there was very much, because there was not a lot of training, you relied on people who came before you and you learned from them. And it was very much on the job training, which meant that you were also understanding sort of why we got there, how we got there, where this all started, the connections to our alliances earlier in the Cold War and World War II. I mean, I'll tell you, that's that's actually where I grew to love history because I became more curious about why is it that we're doing things the way we're doing it now? Why are the Soviets the way the Soviets are? And so there, you know, the naval intelligence community is very much, it's very pr- proud of its history and, and shares that. I became very involved with an organization called the Naval Intelligence Professionals. And again, going back to Intel, which is a trade craft that is used by virtually everybody in the IC. So having it start in the Navy, it's a great place to begin <laughs> um, in terms of mistakes. did we learn from our mistakes? Oh, my. Absolutely. I think that's another reason why I really was blessed to have started at Naval Intelligence, because failure is how you learn. And there was not it's not as much as it, as it is today. If you made a mistake, it wasn't the end of your career. That, that didn't matter whether you're an operator or an, or an Intel officer we learn from our lessons. I've got a great story. I was briefing a navy captain, brand new analyst, and this navy cap this navy captain who would go on to become a very senior admiral wanted to go to another country to obtain a submarine for which we didn't need him to obtain this submarine. We knew everything we needed to know about this particular submarine, and it was my job, the brand new analyst, to go talk to him about this. So you know, I didn't have a customer that was particularly happy to see me. And I went in to brief him, and the name of my briefing was, I, I can say what it is. It was Whiskey SS by Ellen McCarthy, and we used a view foil. I don't even know if anybody knows what a view foil <laughs> is now, but that's what we used. And I had capitalized every letter on the, on the title slide. And he before I even started, he stopped me and said, excuse me, do you spell McCarthy with two capital Cs? And I said, well, no, I mean, normally I use a lowercase C and an upper class C. And he said, you need to tell me then why I need to tell listen to the rest of this briefing if you don't even know how to spell your name. You know, what I learned from that was how to maintain my composure. And I will tell you also to be very prepared. So I will tell you in the case of the Whiskey SS, I knew everything about this submarine. I knew the waste disposal system inside and out, and I was prepared to share that with this customer who didn't want to hear what I had to say. And, and, and that's something that Intel professionals, I think, understand. You have to be prepared to go talk to people that don't want to hear what you have to say, but you have to give it to them in a way that's compelling and useful. And I did.
2: From uh, Naval Intelligence, walk us into the next stage of your career, because the, the, there's so much parts of the intelligence ecosystem that you inhabit for various periods of time. So tell us about the next move.
0: So I would go from naval intelligence to the United States Coast Guard. And I'll tell you, that was an interesting move. It was after the end of the Cold War, the wall had fallen down. Interestingly enough, we were working on a project that was, t- was focused on how the Soviet Navy is still operating. And by the time, timing is everything. By the time the wall fell, nobody cared what the Soviet Navy was doing. And so I was recruited by the Coast Guard to come back to Washington, D.C. and help them move their intelligence office into the United States intelligence community. When I left Norfolk, I had so many of my friends and colleagues. So in those days you never left, you know, you stayed at O&I and that's where you would stay for your whole career. So they were a little incredulous that I would ever think of leaving. And a lot of them said, well, why are you leaving? Because the Coast Guard doesn't shoot anything, which I I laugh about because at those days the Coast Guard was shooting a lot more things than the Navy was. In terms of counter drug operations and port security and so it was a it was a very interesting time to leave the navy and move up to the coast guard in the law enforcement realm because it really was a time when law enforcement was gaining some focus gaining some resources and so i'm incredibly happy i made that move and, and this task of getting the coast guard into the intelligence community really would set the course for the rest of my career because it meant not only understanding what the Coast Guard does, but understanding how the Coast Guard is supported. What is the role of Congress? How does it relate to the other intelligence agencies? How does the budget work? And so because you had to consider all those things when you consider what happens if the Coast Guard moves into this broader intelligence community. And I made those connections and I learned all about that. And I really now gained a much better understanding of not only how analysts do their job, but how they are able to do their job because of resources and acquisition in Congress. So it was a it was a really great move.
2: Wow. And tell us that, about that process of integrating the Coast Guard into the intelligence community. H- how did that happen and why had it not happened before?
0: This was pre-9-11, so that's, that's an, timing is really everything. And there was a couple of reasons why the Coast Guard hadn't been in the intelligence community i mean i think the first reason was nobody ever asked it was one of those cases where the intel office within the the coast guard was very small the coast guard itself is very small when i started it was smaller than the new york city police department roughly twenty-seven thousand people but incredibly impactful in terms of all that the coast guard does whether a lot of people think of them as marine safety and life-saving but very involved in counter-drug, port security, counter-terrorism sort of operations. And they had a very small intel office, but the Coast Guard itself was sort of worried about what would it mean for it if they had an element that went into the intelligence community. The Coast Guard is looked at kind of like the Boy Scouts. They have an incredibly strong brand and so there was some concern that if if we go into the intelligence community we won't be trusted anymore and so we had to um, explain to the coast guard leadership that right now you're not trusted nothing (laughs) wherever you travel there's some presumption that you are doing some sort of intelligence capability but and as a title 10 military service as well as being a law enforcement organization it just made sense that they would have this intelligence capability if for no other reason So they could operate on the same platform as all the other services do. So it was not about getting more money, which a lot of people at the time thought it was. It was about being more closely integrated. And, you know, as the Navy was getting information, that we could get similar information using similar systems.
2: We'll be right back after this. And how did you get recruited? Did you catch someone's eye or something? She's got the chops that we're looking for or what is it you'd done when you went over to the Coast Guard?
0: Timing really is everything, but it really was a person. It was a, a Navy lieutenant who then was a captain who I had worked with and he had done a rotation in the Coast Guard. The Navy and the Coast Guard were very, very close at that time. In fact, much of the funding for Coast Guard intelligence was through the Navy. And so he actually had referred me to the, the civilian who was running the program at the time, Dennis Hager, fabulous former naval officer. And so it really was a person that referred me and I interviewed with Dennis. I'll never forget that. It was standing out on the beach and it was maybe a 30 minute interview. And the next thing you know, I'm being moved back to Washington, D.C.
2: And the transition, what was your uh, your role in all of that?
0: So when I started, I, I was working in the policy and strategy side of the house and again this gets to the whole training thing i didn't i I maybe had been there for three months where i'm learning about coast guard coast guard intelligence its history how it works and um it was when dennis hager that said you know i think we should get into the intelligence community and it was me and a coast guard commander and a contractor that would spend the next three years working this problem and again i'm just so timing is is really everything and because there, because it was such a small office with not very many resources, they just had to work with what they had, and, and I happened to be there at the time. And so I just got as smart as I could on budget and Congress and worked with then the community management staff, which was connected to CIA, and got as smart as I could on how we made this happen. But to end the story on how did it happen, what I also learned was that after three years of working this problem, Coast Guard recruited a, a senior executive. Her name was Fran Townsend. She, had, she would then go on to become President Bush's Homeland Security Advisor. But at the time, she was running Intel Oversight at Department of Justice, and she's a rock star. And they bring her in to Coast Guard. That's a story into itself. And the Commandant of the Coast Guard, I believe it was Admiral Loy at the time, talked to her, or it may have been Thad Allen, but whatever it was, the, com- the commandant said to her, I'm really trying to get the intel office into the IC. And she literally picked up the phone and made one phone call to then head of the Hipsy Porter Goss. And-, and we were in. <laughs> so
2: it was- wow. Okay. Wow. And from there, tell us about the next step. You go from naval to Coast Guard. That's a logical progression. Tell us about the next step.
0: So I would move to this brand new office that was being set up called the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, or USDI. It's now USDI and S. friend and and colleague of mine was there, her name was Tish Long, was helping um, stand up this office um, on the policy and strategy and budget side of the house. Tish was familiar with what I was doing at Coast Guard and really understood that I now had gotten... Um, pretty good at understanding how the budget is worked and the role of personnel and how we knew one another from our time in the Navy. She was standing up a policy and strategy office. And again, getting to the people part of all of this, Steve Cambone was the um, new undersecretary, and Fran Townsend had moved to the White House to work for President Bush as the Homeland Security Advisor. And I'll never forget, Fran is flying to Saudi Arabia. I think it was her first trip in the Bush administration. And she picks up the phone on the plane and calls Steve Cambone and says, you should hire Ellen. And so between Tish and Fran, I was able to make a move from Coast Guard to USDI. And you might wonder, well, why would I want to do that? And I now was learning more and more and more, and I just wanted to apply it to other problems. And so it wasn't that I didn't like the Navy or I didn't like the Coast Guard. It was just now there was this new office whose role it was to bring all the defense intelligence components together to work on the same sheet of music. So it was to get NRO and NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and NSA, and DIA, and the service intel organizations. It was this, USDI's job was to make sure that their budgets were aligned to requirements and that they had similar capabilities that could scale and And so it really, this was was pre-Office of the DNI. So USDI was just standing up to be that element that could work with all of the components together. And I found that um, to be very compelling. And so I moved over to USDI. And again, timing is everything. There was this thing called the WMD Commission. And they had done a review of how the intelligence community operated up till 9-11 and came up with a... uh, a lot of requirements, a lot of um, a lot of conclusions that would lead to the creation of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, which would create a DNI and and would really change the way the intelligence community operated. And so, working policy and strategy, it was my job to get a better understanding of how this new legislation was going to affect the defense intelligence components and authorities. So I now now I'm learning about Title 10, Title 50. What does the DNI have the authority to do? What does USDI have the authority to do? And really coming up with a plan for implementing the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Perfection Act. It's very interesting. History really has suggested that uh, the Department of Defense didn't want to support the stand-up of the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. That was not my experience at all. The Undersecretary made it very clear that we were to, we, the defense intelligence community, was to support the closer integration of this. And it was just to understand how it was supposed to happen. And so I was able to lead that project for Tish Long and Steve Cambone and really come up with the, the steps to help the defense intelligence community better integrate with the rest of the IC.
2: So we'll discuss other parts of your career and in the interview, but even just at this stage, I'm thinking to myself, what are the advantages and the costs of moving across transversing different parts of the intelligence community? Because it sounds like you were doing much more tactical applied stuff and then you begin to learn how the operation functions, operations, budgeting, links to policymakers and so forth. So you're getting this more strategic picture. I guess there's different schools of thought, but some people get on one ladder climb as quickly as you can and stay on that ladder and that's the best way to get to the top. But it sounds like you're advancing in your career as you're moving across institutions.
0: So I, I took a very different path. That's, that's definitely true. And I'm happy to, and I'm going to conclude with what I think about going deep by staying broad. But what was happening was as I was gaining insights into how, not only how, what the mission of the community was, but how, what the business of the community. So how, budget support, why what's the value of understanding resources and congressional oversight and the role of the private sector? And so I was I was learning that and now I wanted to apply what I was learning to other problems in the community. I would go from USDI actually I spent some time working human capital at USDI. So now I was gaining understanding about the importance of people and performance management. And I would take that knowledge and then move on to places like the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where I was running operations. That was a much different job. Talk about taking the tactical and applying it to a 15,000-person agency that um, applies geospatial information support to not only the entire IC, to, but to much of government, it was a very challenging jump. But what that meant was that I I not only understood the mission, as I sit with you here today, Andrew, I mean, I'm very proud to say that I've supported, I think, four, three of the four pillars of national security, and that I've worked defense operations, I've worked law enforcement, and I've worked policy. And I've not only done them in a mission focus as, a, as an analyst, but also then from the underside, you know, the, the people, dollars, and requirements side. And I don't think, and, and I've worked in the private sector, so I now understand how companies make money and the role of companies in supporting this broad IC. And so I I would tell you that I think my last job at INR running the Bureau of Intelligence and Research was really the culmination of all of those other things. I, I would portend that anybody that has any desire to run an agency or run anything should not only understand what the product or service is, but how you develop that product and service. It's You you can't just be good at the mission. You can't just be the most dynamite geospatial intelligence analyst in the world. You also need to understand acquisition and people and Congress and money and dollars. And I think I had that that experience when I went to INR. And I I would say that I think everybody who runs an agency needs to have similar, not the same experiences, but certainly similar understanding of not just what you do, but how you get there.
2: Do you think you lose anything by moving um, across?
0: So I think that, so this is answering your question a long way, Andrews. Is it better to go deep and stay in one agency or organization and gain incredible expertise or to move around to six different agencies like I did? And I think the answer is it's both. And, you know, it's so funny because I really, I was such a huge proponent of joint duty, this concept of intel officers moving around and gaining experience and using that experience to ultimately get promoted. And I still think that's a great program, but there's also having worked in INR, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, I now saw firsthand the value of also having this deep expertise. So at INR, um, one of the smaller Intel elements, our analysts tend to be on their portfolio, whether it's function or region for an average of 17 years. And you don't see that at any other intelligence organization. They truly are expert at whatever it is they do. And I will tell you that there is great value in having that and having people like that. Um, Now, I would tell you that those who are even deep still need to get outside experiences. They still need to do rotations elsewhere. But I would say that... I now, as I look back on my career, realize that it's really a portfolio approach. You need people who have broad understanding of the entire IC and you need people that are very deep experts. And I think the challenge for the IC leadership is getting a sense of what's, what's, the, what's the recipe to have both? And I'm not sure we're quite there yet.
2: And I'm wondering as well if it depends on Where you see your future or what your particular role is in the intelligence community. Because for a leader, you want someone with a diversified portfolio. But if you want someone, say, in terms of financial markets, there's like the corn harvest expert who's been there for 18 years, you know, that's the person you want to find. You don't want to find someone that's just been on the job a few years, probably. So, I'm wondering if it depends on the position that you have or where you see your own future. If you see yourself as a career, I'm going to be the Pakistan person, INR, or I want to be a leader and do different things.
0: Yeah, I think that's the beauty of this intelligence community. And I am bullish on it is that you can be both. And maybe that's a little different. And maybe that's where things are different now than they were when I started. I think with the introduction of programs like joint duty, you can be either, you can choose your career path. You can be that deep INR expert, or you can be Ellen McCarthy with ADHD who just wants to try (laughs) new things and and move around. And that, that may be where the community is different. And I think that though, we really do need to get our arms around. We need to do better in terms of how we manage this incredible resource of our people. Like what is the percentage of each that you need? It's funny, as I look at my time at various agencies, almost by osmosis does it work out, where you bring in somebody who, Tish Long, for example, when she was the director of NGA, Tish came in and I thought really moved the agency forward because of her great understanding of resources and and innovation. And I mean, she was somebody who truly was um, an expert at the business of intelligence, and she set a strategy and she set a vision and knew how the knew how to move the agency towards that how to better exploit commercial imagery and she really got that and how to make it happen but then you know Robert Cardillo and Admiral Sharp came in and Robert's an incredible analyst and Rob, Bob Sharp, of course, is a, an amazing operator who understands the Navy, and and it was time to reintroduce to NGA, you know, that it is a combat support agency and that it is an analytic entity. And so they brought in, which really just which really just enriches NGA and its capabilities.
2: So tell us a little bit more about some of the other positions that you have. So maybe the the logical next step, since we've just been talking about broad and deep and other things, tell us about your role. In terms of human personnel management and so forth? What did you learn? What did you do? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, please.
0: When I was at USDI, Jim Clapper would come in as the undersecretary, and he's, he said to me, You know, I want you to run this office, human capital management. And I said to him, I am not the HR lady. You know, why? I, no, you know, that's not my, I don't even, I'm horrible at my own performance review, you and you want me to, help others with theirs. I, I am not that person. And he said, you absolutely are that person, Ellen. And he was right. You know, it's funny. I I, I went in kicking and screaming, but I now look back and realize he was a hundred percent right. That when you have so many bosses that say people are our number one priority and they are, they absolutely have it right. The challenge is how do you make them your number one priority <laughs> and, and, and how do you do it? And why are they number your number one priority? And so when I went into USDI to lead human capital management, my focus was developing a pay-for-performance system. So it really was about how can you get your civilians compensated for their performance? Very much the way it works in the private sector. You do a good job, you get a raise. Unlike the way it tends to work in the government, which is if you sit in your same seat, then you get a raise. You know, the GS scale fights the pay-for-performance scale. But I'll tell you that I learned so much about how perform, about leadership and performance management and how we pay people and why it's so hard, you know, why it's so hard to change personnel models in the government. And it really gets to people don't like change. People are afraid of change. People don't always trust their bosses. They don't always trust that their boss can assess their performance in a way that truly reflects how they're doing. I think history has shown in the intelligence community, that's absolutely a valid fear. I just think about Virginia Hall when she was at CIA and she got a couple of bad performance evaluations because either she wasn't wearing makeup or because they didn't think that she could do her job. A woman that turned the tide of World War II couldn't do her job. And so when people are concerned in government about their ability of their manager to assess their performance, they're valid in that concern. And yet we still are struggling as a community, as this large government bureaucracy with needing to change our business model, needing to make performance a critical aspect, needing because that's how people are incentivized to do more, to bring on new capabilities, to be more innovative. That's how human beings operate. And yet we're still stuck in this system where we don't always trust our leaders to, to, to manage us. And so I'll tell you that that was... That's what I learned walking out about how incredible, incredibly challenging it is on the people's side, even though in the intelligence community, the value is our people. We started this interview with that. It's their ability to develop unique insights that can't be gotten anywhere else. And, and so how do we incentivize people? How do we pay people to be creative, be innovative, to want to move out, to be hungry? I think that's the biggest challenge we face in the government right now.
2: As someone that's had the career that you've had, government, private sector, various parts of the intelligence community, when you look at it now with the, the perspective that you have, what are you thinking to yourself or what are you talking to some friends with over lunch? You Because know, as you said, you never quite leave it so you're probably still thinking about and worrying about. uh,
0: Our personnel system for the most part is the same as it was when I started. I mean, that's, I mean, it's really how you get a job, how you get, you know, it's it's really sort of frustrating that from 1988 to 2022, you know, how you get into the IC has not changed that much. But the reality is the world has, and I think the IC needs to catch up. Um, The kinds of people that the IC needs are, People who not only have deep technical skills, but also are good at this, the, the softer science sciences. You know, the people who understand critical thinking and understand the world and understand history. And both sides of their brain are, are well developed. Um, the challenge is, is that private sector needs those people as well. So you're now competing with the private sector in ways that you never were before. It used to be that the mission was so compelling. And by the way, it is very compelling. You know, Working in the United States intelligence community is, is fabulous, but there's a lot of mission areas where you can get that similar self-actualization in the private sector that are mission-focused kind of opportunities. So if you're somebody who loves working cyber and you've got someone like Capital One saying, come work for me, I'm gonna pay you a decent wage. I'm gonna give you flexibilities you can carry one of these cell phones with you. And by the way, you're also going to save your family's money. That's a compelling mission. And so why would I want to go into an NSA where I'm not allowed to bring my cell phone? I have set working hours. I have to go through a polygraph and I can only do what I'm supposed to do. I mean, that's those are the challenges the IC faces today. How, you know, in a post-COVID environment, how can we provide similar flexibilities to our people? How can we let new dads maybe come in at nine in the morning, vice five thirty in the morning and do their job? How can they stay connected to their family, you know, while they're at work and, and these are not new challenges by the way, but large bureaucracies are so hard to change. <laughs> and, and I know the IC is looking at this, at this right now, but I think it's going to require some monumental change, not iterative change.
2: Before we go on to the INR, tell us about some of the other positions that you have before you go there.
0: So I left a couple of times. So I did work at NGA, but in between, I worked at a a nonprofit called the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. That's actually a funny story. I left USDI when Jim Clapper was the undersecretary, and he had actually helped create the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, or its predecessor organization, and when I went to tell him that I was leaving government, he said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Again, because you just didn't leave government. And But I'll tell you that a year later, after I worked at INSA, he at an event came to me and said, I'm so very proud of you for what you did. And that meant everything. That's like your father telling you how proud he is of you. But I'll tell you, leaving government to run a nonprofit that is, is Providing a platform for government and the private sector to come together and talk about some hard problems. How should acquisition work? How should security clearances work? How can we introduce more innovation into the government? And, And that's what INSA does. And so I gained some real insights to how the private sector works, how it wants to support the government, what the challenges are, and and also gaining exposure to this whole new world in terms of just now learning about other companies and other capabilities. I actually would leave government another time after I was at NGA. I would leave to run a um, for-profit company that was aligned to another nonprofit called Noblis, and that company is very focused on research and development and innovation. And as a for-profit subsidiary, it was my job to incorporate the the programs that Noblis had created through its R&D investments into the government. And so this concept of how you do that, how you deliver capabilities to the IC, I mean, and now I I saw how you make money. It's not as easy. It's not very easy. And so I gained that expertise again. And I did it just because I was curious. I've got to tell you, I've done everything because I thought it was fun. I never (laughs) did anything with the thought that Someday it's going to lead to something else. Every every opportunity has been. This sounds like fun. I, I will try it. So it's not a traditional path. But that's pretty much all I've done between here and INR. <laughs> and if you ask me who my favorite ones were, it would be INR and the Coast Guard.
2: Really? Wow. I find the NGA really interesting because you can't get any more macro than looking at planet Earth, can you? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to tell you.
0: NGA was NGA was. An incredible and incredibly challenging experience for me because you talk about large, large bureaucracies that do the coolest work. When you know when you talk about visualizing the earth, it doesn't get any, you know, any more interesting, any more fascinating than that. Just to give you some perspective, when I started as an all-source analyst at Naval Intelligence, imagery analysts at the time were called PIs. You can't even use that word anymore. They were photo interpreters. PI is a bad word, but we've had our photo interpreters were in the basement of the building at Suitland. They all have light tables. They would analyze photos that were collected through early satellite capabilities and reconnaissance aircraft. And we, the all-source analyst, would go down to the basement and they would tell us what they saw and they'd give us what they saw and You never heard from them you had to go to the basement and then we the all source analysts would take what they'd given us and go present it to a customer the pis were never to be heard or seen and which is really a shame by the way but that's the way it worked and so you know in those days the imagery office was all about you just look at imagery you don't talk about it And to my time when I went to NGA and everything had changed, you know, now the imagery domain was no longer just a government domain. The private sector, the digital age, there was this explosion in capabilities in terms of commercial satellite systems and the capabilities, the tools that were out there, whether they were infrared or 3D or or just the, the ways in which we could analyze images was no longer just a light table synthetic aperture radar. Now photo interpreters were no longer photo interpreters. They were geospatial imagery specialists. These were highly technical, highly skilled people who also not only um, could look at a point in earth or space, but they understood why it was important. And so the days of the PIs never being seen or heard were long over. And NGA had moved into its new building in Springfield at that time, this gorgeous, huge building, all glass. And there was never a day I drove into that building was not completely awestruck and by those imagery experts who were just so good at what they did. I was very intimidated my first year there because I was a consumer of imagery, but I was not a producer of imagery. And so I had to get really smart fast. But I think that the reason that I was brought over to NGA, the reason Tish brought me over was because I knew about how the private sector worked and what was going on in the commercial imagery world. And so the challenge was, how do you move a large bureaucracy to maybe change its business model a little bit? How do you get um, that community to be more comfortable leveraging what's going on in the private sector? How, as a former human capital person, do you incentivize analysts to want to work with commercially obtained images vice just images that are um, secured by national technical means and how do you align budget to requirements so she brought me on board more because of my understanding of the IC than because of my understanding of geospatial imagery
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of Spycast Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources detailed show notes and full transcripts We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.
1: Hey all, Rick here.